Hey everybody, so I am Miles Keys and I am the leader of the For the Culture Foundation and we are so, so honored to be talking to you guys today. Um, today we want to dive into some issues that are affecting our community and um, we really just want to talk about some stuff and, and shine some light on a lot of issues. Um, so this podcast is to talk about racism at Ridgepoint High School. Um, so I have a fantastic group of guest speakers with me and um, we are all students at Ridgepoint. And we want to take this time to kind of dive into some stuff that is real, that is true, and, and really just open up. Um, I do want to start off by saying that this is not an attack on Ridgepoint High School in any shape, way, or form. For the most part, I have thoroughly enjoyed my time at Ridgepoint. I feel like I've gotten a really good education. I've made a bunch of great friends. I've excelled in the things that I'm passionate about. I have gone to a good school. There are some issues, though, that are taking place, and these issues need to come to an end. Um, so with that being said, I want to go ahead and get started. And first, I'm going to start off by introducing um, everybody else that's here speaking with me. So James, do you want to go first? Hello, I am James McClam. I'm a rising senior, and I also attend Ridgepoint High School. Hi, I'm Lexi Starnes. I'm also going to be a senior this upcoming year, and I go to Ridgepoint High School. Hi, I'm Evan Blackwell. I'm a recent graduate of Ridgepoint High School, and will be attending Ryder University. Hi, I'm Maya Woodruff, and I'm a rising senior at Ridgepoint. <laughs> and I'm Miles, and I'm a rising senior. Um, but I also kind of want to just um, give you guys a little bit about our personalities, kind of what clubs and stuff that we do. So um, for the past three years, I've been involved in theater, Black History Club, choir, um, National Honor Society, English National Honor Society, and I have had a great time doing all these things. James, you want to tell us a little bit about? Yes, I've been involved in theater, choir, sometimes Black History Club, and then on occasion, Spanish <laughs> Club, and then I do Boy Scouts on the side. Um, I only do theater, and sometimes I go to Black History Club, but that's about it. <laughs> I've been avidly involved with uh, theater and choir for the past uh, four years. Um, I'm a part of theater, and I'm also a part of a nonprofit organization called Operation Change. Yeah, so um, about two months ago, um, everybody here, we kind of organized a fundraiser for Black Lives Matter. And we were able to give almost $6,000 to the National Legal Defense Fund project that helps uh, provide revenue for arrested protesters. And we also were able to give to Black Lives Matter. Um, and so from that fundraiser, we kind of turned our little group into a foundation. And that is for the culture. Um, you can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. And we are really just ready to jump in and fight for some change. Um, so this first part of our series is going to be about racism in the classrooms and just socially at the school in general. Um, and the first thing that I kind of want to touch on is really racism in the curriculums. You know, um, whoever writes the history books, who writes what we are actually learning in the classrooms are the people who win, are the people who have the power. And so I feel like and, and a lot of times in our education systems, we're given this material and we're, we're, giving, we're given this information and it's presented to us in a slanted way sometimes. Um, and I just kind of, what do y'all think about that? So pretty much like 
from a young age, like all of our textbooks are made by the same people. Like in Texas, we use McGraw Hill. Mm -hmm. And like, if I don't think that we should just have one perspective of history. history. Mm -hmm. And obviously, it's going to be biased no matter what. Mm -hmm. So the fact that we're getting one line of people producing our history books from the time that we're in kindergarten to the time that we graduate, I think is ridiculous. Especially history books that teach history in a very... It teaches a very Eurocentric and whitewashed history of imperialism and colonialism. And of obviously, uh, an education system based in a country that was founded on imperialism is going to have a slanted view of imperialism, but it should be up to us. It should be up to the uh, education system to offer different uh, viewpoints from both us as the perpetrators, the U.S. as the perpetrators of these acts, and from the victims of these acts. We never really divulge into the cultures of the Native Americans before they were displaced by our country, or we never divide into the cultures of uh, enslaved people from Africa who were brought over. We're generally taught the Eurocentric and Anglocentric view of history as done by white people and as it's affected by white people. That's the struggle we're generally taught. When we're told in history that we as a country do several acts, it's done in a way that specifically gets us to side with uh, the white norm, the white normality, basically, it gets people to side with their oppressors. When the teacher says that we had slaves deported from Africa, when the teachers say that we went into war in the Middle yeah. East, so on yeah. and so forth, it kind of creates a homogenized view, and it causes us to internalize our feelings about war, about again, about imperialism, about racism, to a point where, when someone criticizes war, when someone criticizes the way the U.S. has acted in the past. We take it as a personal slight because we've been told we this whole time. Yeah. And it should be like, spoken. Yeah. Uh, I feel like also history in these books and stuff, it's presented as an absolute. It's this is what happened, yeah. you know. And then obviously, too, you as a five-year-old child, as an eight-year-old child, your brain is like, okay, this is what I'm learning. This is the truth. Yeah. And you don't really, it, it's not until you get older that you actually are able to branch out and, and kind of explore what the truth is. And for me, at least, I know growing up, um, I would talk to my parents about what I'm learning and they, you know, it, it, it wasn't, it would, it would confuse me as a child to kind of get this contrasting, this contrast of opinions. And, and to me, when history is taught incorrectly to an extent and then it's delivered to the child as an absolute, you create a system that doesn't, that doesn't really look at the truth and, and it doesn't, it's, it's not good for change. So... Yeah. Another way that the um, uh, another way that I would say history as taught in U.S. classrooms really sidesteps change is that the idea of the radical quote unquote is shaped in a very specific way to children. Uh, people like John Brown or like Malcolm X are generally considered they're always taught as villains yeah. in history. Anyone who's able to take direct action because we're taught history from a point of the status quo. We're taught history as it is now. Now things are good. And whatever was taken to get things to the way they are now are good. So a radical, quote-unquote, like Malcolm X is easy to scapegoat for the failures of the civil rights movement. Yeah. As part of shifting, instead of shifting the blame onto moderates, we shift it onto convenient radicals. The early failures of the abolitionist movement, we can shift onto people like John Brown as opposed to people like moderates. That's just the way that the idea of the radical has been taught to us. Now, I'm not saying that they should praise uh, uncritically every single person who would be called a radical normally, 
But it should be noted that it's a definite side that they're taking of anti-radical, anti-direct action, pro-moderate. Obviously pro-moderate because it's taught, we're taught the status quo. We're taught how things got to the status quo. Especially in government and economics, we're taught how the current, the current economic system that the U.S. has, we're only taught how that works. And all the flaws of our current economic system are just kind of taught as incidental quirks that can be solved by pushing our, our current economic system of general mixed market capitalism further and further and further. Well, to me also, when you when you think about, okay, history has presented itself as, it, it's being presented in education systems as, okay, everything up to this point is good and now we're good. And then the child yeah. sees on the news these protests and stuff mm -hmm. and, stuff, and yeah. everything that's going on in the world. How do you expect to keep up this facade of lies, essentially, yeah. Yeah. in a child's brain? Children believe what they see. And so when you present things as a false narrative and then you have the contrast to that with what's actually happening in the world, how can you ever expect truth from that? That doesn't make sense. Well, history itself is hard to write because there's always different views and different ideas of what you think a history is. Like, how, how we have history right now in America... It's going to be biased like it is in Europe or in France, in Africa. It just depends on where it is because that's their perspective on it because these people write it. People that write history in America are usually white Americans and how they view history from themselves. How, they be, how we view history as America is we are America, we are great, we are the pure. That's how history is going to be viewed. In Africa, they're, gonna, they're probably going to have, they're gonna have history as something like how, how Europeans took over our land and conquested it for their own simple purpose. But in Europe, they're going to see that as we did it because we had reasons to because we want to better our own countries. Yeah. So history is always going to be hard to write because there's no, that's the, that's the thing about history. There's no black and white. Everything in history is gray. Everything that we have in history is gray. And that's so ironic because you would expect history to just be this is what happened. This yeah. Is the facts. But I see something from 100 miles away. Somebody, or not 100 miles, that's a little far. But like 100 yards away, somebody's right up close to it. There's always, always, always different perspectives. And I also think that because history is kind of presented in this, history is great because of the multiple perspectives that are going on. Some things in history absolutely are absolutes. Slavery happened. That's an absolute. We know that these are facts. But I feel like on top of that, but the, but the thing with slavery, though, is remember, to, like, in our A-Push history, they always said that the South needed slavery for them yeah. to prosper. That was, that was the reasoning for having slavery. The thing, slavery can be absolute, but they have reasons for it. That's what I think. But then you, like, go back to your, like, all this stuff about how there's always, like, different viewpoints on history. It stems from a European and how they conquest and how they feel about their land. Whoever has the most land has the most power. Whoever has the most, whoever has the most power is the most superior country. So racism stems from Europeans trying to conquer land and then saying they're the best, the best country they are. Well, my question is, okay, we know that this gray area exists, quote unquote. Why aren't we talking about it? Why is this stuff still being presented as an absolute? Now, I know when you present information to a child, you can't say, well, this kind of happened, but it kind of not saying that. But what I do feel like is why are, why are teachers not having this very conversation? Obviously, when you get a little bit older, you can actually understand that philosophy. But when you're getting older, why are things still being, yeah, okay, present it in this way, but say, this is how history works. This is their multiple, you know, why is that not a conversation that's being had? And to me, that doesn't make any sense because as you get older and you ask yourself these questions, 
resentment builds up. Why 10 years ago was I not learning this? Why 15 years ago did I not learn this in this classroom? And so then now you have a whole group of people who are against the education system and it just leads to a whole snowball of problems. Well, I think a lot of that is based on how we educate kids in America. We're often taught of a right answer and wrong answer in every single facet, in literary analysis and historical analysis, any kind of analysis we're always taught of, the right way to analyze it and the wrong way to analyze it, the good option and the bad option. And generally, the good option is, again, based on the status quo of now. We're taught of the idea of the civil rights movement as basically as the idea of black people had less rights in the past and now they have equal rights now. We're thought of it as a thing that existed in the past and doesn't exist in the present. We're taught of basically every kind of social movement and social change as a thing that happened in the past, as a state of values that existed in the past and that don't exist now. We're never really taught about the flaws inherent in current events or how flaws from the past are still upheld in current events. We're always taught of how we overcame something of the past. And because his, because the way our education system, it rewards a right way of thinking, it rewards a right way of analyzing something, it just causes whatever inherent biases are in the creators of the system or on the people who write the mm -hmm. curriculums, who write the textbooks, come through in the way it's... But that's the problem tested. in itself, is in the past. We don't think it's about people and humans in general. If you have a bad past of things that you know that can look, that can frown upon, why would you want to have, have it full-blown in your face? Mm -hmm. And like, we're saying like, even though racism or like slavery has been ended, you still have, you still have great-grandparents uh, great-great-grandparents and the people that they know that are still deeply rooted into racism and how they feel about people of different skin color than their own. And that's the whole, that's the whole problem. Like, the past, even though that is the past, why would you want your biggest, your darkest past to be full-blown? So that's why they have, that's why they sugarcoat it. That's why I think every European country, every, every country, every continent sugarcoats their history. That's just, how it ha that's just how it is. This is how we, that's just how we are. And I, f I feel like, too, think, I think about it in the simplest terms. When you have, when you have a child, okay, so you have, you have a child and you're wrong about something. You made a mistake in your parenting. You don't want to tell that child that. You don't yeah. want to undermine your authority. You don't yeah. want to. And, and eventually, most people get to a point where they realize that that's actually teaching the child how to be accountable. And that's a good trait for them to learn. But people don't want to admit when they're wrong in general. And so when you have grandparents, like James was saying, and great-grandparents, when you have ancestors who have done something for so long that has caused so much pain for so many people, they don't want to teach their children what they've done. They don't want to mainstream their mistakes. And so I feel like you just get this cycle of a facade that cannot work. And on top of all of this, we, we're talking about the curriculum and stuff like that, but what adds on to the way, to the flaws that in, in the way that history is being taught is the teacher. Yes. But that's the, the, but that, before we get to the, that's the thing though, what you were saying, you said every, everybody has a facade. I feel like it is a facade at some point, but also every part of history has some sort of justification of why they did that. When you, if you ask someone, back, back when slavery was around, you ask a slave girl why they have slaves in the South, they would say, I need it for me to become better, for me to go up in the economic system. I need, I need slaves to better myself. And that was a justification. They saw there's nothing wrong with that. You, you know, the human as other, as other human labor, nothing wrong with that. So like the thing is with the facade, I feel like part of it, it was the facade, but also, also part of it was just how they were, how they were taught. 
and just how how it was back then. Well, well, to me, I feel like okay. So, I remember um, my sophomore year in WAP, which stands for um, World History AP. I was sitting, I was sitting in history class, and this teacher, he was a good teacher. He's a good person, you know. I'm, I'm, I don't have any anything against him, but I do think that he made a mistake in this. He really wanted. It came time for the slavery unit, and. Um, he really wanted to emphasize the fact that slavery isn't one-dimensional. And it, he has a point, you know, he wanted, you know, I feel like, you know, a lot of times he, he in his brain, he's thinking, okay, these children are thinking um, Anglo-Americans started slavery with black people. That was the beginning of slavery. I want to show them that it's more than that, that it dates back to Greek and Roman times and all of this stuff. And these are facts. But the issue to me is when you present that in that way, you make it seem like you're almost undermining the fact that white people did treat the African-Americans very, 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 very poorly for a long time. And I feel like when you don't make that point, you can teach the complexity of slavery, but when you don't sit here and say, this is what happened, this was absolutely wrong, but understand that this dates farther back than that, you make a mistake. And so, you know, y'all know how I, I was the first one to raise my hand and say, uh, sir, that's not going to work. <laughs> Absolutely not. Let's be very clear. You know what I'm saying? But I feel like, too, I remember that day like it was yesterday, and I was sitting in that classroom tapping my pencil. I was probably bored, too, but I was sitting there tapping my pencil. And it took so much courage and so much bravery for me to sit there and raise my hand and make that point. I was nervous. And I thought about it after, and I'm like, why am I nervous? That's a fact, what I was saying. Yeah. Why is the system set up to where we don't want to say anything? And I think that's why we want to do this podcast, because these things need to be talked about. These points need to be made. And when you are in the middle of a system, in the midst of a system that prevents you, that wants to prevent you from speaking out against injustice, you have to have that bravery and that courage. And I look back on that, and I hope... I hope that I get a teacher that does the same thing because I want to speak up again and I want to let that teacher know that, yo, that's not going to work. You know what I'm saying? So it's just, it's crazy. But and, I, and I do hope that teachers like that don't exist. You know what I'm saying? I'm not wishing for that. But I hope that the next person that comes across me that does that, I'm ready for you. I'm ready for you because I learned from that experience and that won't happen again. On to the teachers, though. My mom, um, she always tells me a story about how when she was in college, she knew that, like, her history teacher her professor had like was very very biased is what she said and she would literally write her essays in like the idea like at the beginning of the class the teacher literally told the students he said I am biased like I'm a little bit biased so when you're writing your history essays keep that in mind so when you would turn it in you wouldn't have like a name you just have a number and my mom said that she would literally write her essays in the mind of a white male so that she would get good grades because she knew that her teacher wouldn't give her good grades if she wrote what she really thought and what she really felt. I mean, teachers are biased to produce history in the way that they themselves were taught. I mean, the way, uh, similar to like Miles' story about how ancient Rome is taught to us, our teachers kind of have a perception that's kind of, and it's bolstered by movies and TV as well as the pictures that are in our history books of the past as being a very monolithic, every person was white and they looked like a white person looks today so on and so forth we have a view of ancient rome as being a lot of white people around 
who were who would look and acted like white people do right now. And if you look historically, that's probably not true. That, <laughs> that the Romans probably don't look like how you know a white person, what we imagine a white person to look today. People who lived in the Middle East during the biblical times didn't look like white people. But we're always taught that. We're shown that in history books. And we're told that that's the norm of how history started. We're always taught things that are considered alternative. People who aren't white. People who aren't straight. People who in any way falter from our normal... Anyone who falters from from the norm of our society as something new. As a deviation from the classical. And because of that, our... Teachers themselves, when they teach us about history, when they teach us about the past, were taught a Eurocentric, again, a Eurocentric, Anglocentric view of how these people lived. We're taught our view of our Jesus who looked super white and pale and had blonde hair and blue eyes. We're taught all of that stuff in history. We're taught about, you know, the Romans who looked super white. We're taught about all of those people who looked white and straight, like corn-fed Americans. And because of that, <laughs> and because of that, right, it leads us to have a very, at least to have a view of history as being things that would be considered countercultural, that we consider now to be countercultural, are new and were created recently and are yeah. deviations from how the world should and always has acted. That's the right. narrative that's being told to us when we're given history in this way. But what, I, what do you mean by narrative? Because in the narrative of any kind of social progress yes. being new, any kind, any anything that we consider social progress, like social equality, or like uh, fighting off the very aggressive heteronormativity that's in yeah. our culture today, we're taught that that's very new. We're taught that that's a new development in history. Okay. But I mean, black people have existed for centuries. They've existed before white people existed. Yeah. You know, homosexuality has existed for. Yeah eons and eons but we're told that's only happened now again we're told that the romans look like a bunch of white guys they're a bunch of white straight guys when in reality you look at the facts that's not true that's not accurate but because of how that's told to us as kids that's how what we're seeing in tv that's what we're seeing on movies and stuff like that we read in their history books we look at the pictures of romans depicted we grew up thinking that and then as teachers you know that's what you're thinking in the back of your mind when you're teaching how the rest of history is taught. You're taught that new th- anything that we would consider countercultural is a new development. Anything that we consider not the norm is a... Anything that we would consider a deviation is a deviation in terms of the world's history, when that not, might not be true. I find that really funny, too, because how we, in our society, we think of, like, um, like the LGBT, like, rights movement like we think of that as a new thing or talking about how like gender is on a spectrum as like a new very 21st century thing when in reality it's only a new thing for our westernized society many indigenous people have always thought that way you can read history books dating back to when people didn't really view gender that way so it's just funny that we always act like oh this is something brand new but it's only brand new to our society. It's well, that biased mindset, in my opinion, because like if you have something that's if you have something that's different from you, and you're biased about how what you think, and you stand on what you think and what you believe in, and you don't want anyone else saying, and you don't want anyone else saying what you believe in can be changed. That's where that biased mindset comes in. Of no, I want this to be the same. Because like, the thing is, the thing is of change and how people react to change is it can be good, it can be bad. The thing is with most people in America 
it's changed. Which is trying to have change though in a large group of people. Change is hard, mm-hmm. and like the thing is, we're finally trying to change how we how we view the world, have a more open mindset. People that stay in that narrow mindset are getting you know prosecuted for like they're getting spoken out against it. And that to me, um, to me, punishing the people who speak out and speak for change, that dates back to school. Literally school. That anxiety that I felt that day when I was going to speak up to that man, that stems from the fear of being and getting in trouble for literally stating my opinion. And a lot of times, the, that kid in the classroom, that's the problem child, you know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Then you also have the, the community of teachers. Now, so-and-so is going to go tell other so-and-so, oh, this student is bad, and I just, yep, you'll have them next year. And now you already set this child up for failure, for speaking truth. And I feel like the system of where we punish people who just have a different opinion or who just, you know, um, especially in regards to race-related things, it's just not going to work. It's not going to work. Because guess what? That one person that wants change for the black community, that one person that wants these white supremacists and stuff out here to stop, it's more than one person now. They have a whole group of people rallying rallying behind them. And then you want to label all of them as a problem system. And then that's where you get protests and stuff like that. And it's just like we have to learn to listen to each other's voices. And I think that starts at a very young age. Yeah. Because the second that that teacher shuts down that kid, you light up a fire inside of that kid. Yeah. You make them want to keep fighting for change. Yeah, but I was I was going to point that out. Like, it starts in elementary school because as a young child, if you question, like, your parents or you have questions because you grow up and you hear all of this stuff, and kids have questions all the time, and so when they ask your parents and then your parents counteract and tell you something different or something that they didn't tell you at school, and then you go back at school and you question your teacher, your teacher kind of blows it off or, like, brushes it off. Even in elementary school, like, when they would talk about that because they don't, it's like, I also feel like it's a fear for teachers to go and talk about these situations. Like, they don't they don't know what to do in these type of situations. I'm not saying all teachers, all history teachers are like that. Mm-hmm. However, most of them are like that, where they have a fear of being asked those questions because they don't know how to counteract on that. And, you know, this this is my thing. You know, my mom is, um, is a teacher, and, you know, and I'm sure I know your mom's... Uh, yeah, so a lot of our parents are uh, are teachers, and you know when you when you um, when you uh, when you when you talk to your parents and they're like, oh, I had this meeting, and oh, we have teacher development and all of this stuff. When did you have a meeting with these teachers about how to teach slavery? When? Yeah. When? Why? Why is that not a thing? Yeah, that's the that's the question. How can you teach slavery? That's a great question. How can you teach what? What we like, what we what we have taught in history, like what Evan said, it, it, history. I don't think history should be a yes or no. It can't be a yes or no answer. Yeah. But that's the thing. That's the hardest part. Is how would you come across teaching slavery, teaching genocide, or teaching what we do to Native American people? It's a different. It's a difficult question to answer. But the problem just stems from the fact that it's never been posed. It's never been mm-hmm. posed by our teachers how to respond to that because we're told that the way that it was taught to our parents maybe a little bit of adjustments so that it's a little bit more uh, appealing to like a younger audience again it, it's a, it's kind of like the way we're taught history it's sort of not 
it's not even really curated. It's more that it's marketed. It's marketed mm, in exactly. a way that kids all all seventh grade will agree more. Yeah, all seventh grade, all middle school in Texas is taught about Texas history. Yeah, how Texas yeah. is glorified. Yeah, how Texas is one nation on its own in the in the country. How Texas yeah, we're told that exactly. in a flagrantly like imperialist action of the creation of Texas was a positive good in its creation of this state. Mm-hmm. You know, we're told that. The war, uh, the wars that were fought, of course, the U.S. are the good people because we just wanted to create a little uh, nation state of Texas, you know, and that the Mexicans were bad for, you know, banning slavery Mm -hmm, in Texas. They were infringing on our rights. And we're told that the uh, Native Americans who already lived here, who were displaced for the creation of Texas, were... They were aggressive, they were savage, and that the fight against them in order to improve the land that the ungrateful natives hadn't built, you know, freeways on top of or anything, yeah. were, again, it's a positive good. It's a force for the development of our, of our country. Yeah. You know, I, I think about, um, when, you, when you talk about Native Americans and displacement and stuff like that, um, for, um, so I'm the theater president president of um, the theater troupe at my school and I love it, I love my troupe, and we're gonna talk about that later, so uh, stay tuned if you wanna hear about that. But um, we, we have a, um, we have a back to school kind of uh, party, get to know all the theater students across the district, and it was called assimilation. Why is it called that? That word has such a negative... I didn't even think about that. And, you know, I had a meeting with all of the presidents um, not too long ago, and somebody brought that up. And I was like, thank you. Yeah, yeah. why is it called yeah, that? That's weird. That's weird. Right. And on top of that, let's be real. Who wants to go to something called a sentence? <laughs> like, let's be no, real. What real. is that? What happened to ice cream it's ice cream social? What is it just a social period? Right. Like an assimilation. Uh-uh. No, but also with what Evan was saying, I think also, especially with this movement, we're, I understand that we're mainly focused on black people. However, I also think we also have to think about all the other races that were discriminated as well. Like Mexicans were highly discriminated and were also put into slavery back when we were in slavery as well. And I feel like a bunch of people only look at it as black and white, like as black people and white people, but there was also so many other races that were a part of slavery that don't get known as much as black people and white people. And I think that that should be shown too, like Mexicans and all like, all of the other yeah. color people a good, should uh, be. A good way to like kind of chronicle about how like history has changed and how we teach history is what a white person is, you know, what we consider a white person now isn't what would be considered a white person yeah. in the 1800s, you know, yes. an Italian guy or an Irish person, they wouldn't be considered white, white. Yeah. like years ago, or like a Polish person, they wouldn't be considered white. The idea of white is kind of based on, Pure. again, it's based on, well, yeah, but it's based on the status quo, it's based on yeah. what yeah. exists now, what we call white, and who holds the privileges of a white person now is what we now, looking in the past, call a white person. Mm-hmm. We imagine a white person who owns slaves. We have this image that's based on what white people are like now, mm-hmm. and so on and so forth. What was considered white is a very complex, changing definition. At a certain time in the past, again, an Italian wouldn't be considered white. Yeah. Or, uh, Irish people wouldn't be considered white. People of Hispanic descent who had lighter skin wouldn't be considered white. Yeah, and speaking of, uh, of white, 
um, it is time for us to welcome <laughs> our white friends on. <laughs> All right, so the first person I have um, bringing on right now is Victoria. So you want to go ahead and um, introduce yourself? Hi, I'm Victoria Farr, and I'm going to be a senior at Rich Point. And the next person I have is Rohan. Uh, hi, my name is Rohan Scaria. Um, I'm a Rich Point alum. I'm going to University of Houston this year. Uh, I'm part of the Indian community. My parents both immigrated from India, so that's my viewpoint and perspective from this. Hi, I'm Talia, and I am going to be a junior at Rich Point High School, and I'm Jewish. And hey, I'm Jack. I am. I just graduated, and I will be attending the University of Denver in the fall. And I'm very excited to uh, talk with you guys. Cool. So, um, really what I want to know is how do you guys feel when we're sitting in these classrooms and, and we're learning uh, we're learning about slavery and stuff like that and you get all these different viewpoints and stuff like that. How, how do y'all feel? What's your thoughts? I think it's nothing out of the ordinary. It's something that we just, uh, you know, we've, uh, we've learned it since we were kindergarten. We, 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 we see it as normal. You know, then there are sensitivities that just aren't brought up. There's the, the slavery is a taboo. There's just things that are just too sensitive, and uh, we don't want to break apart from that. And when it, when it does, that that brings a brings a sort of uh, defensiveness mm. that I think we need to um, uh, bring some clarity to and eliminate. I think. Yeah, and to me, you know, part of that quote unquote awkwardness that comes with um, with, that comes with teaching um, race related issues um, in the classroom stems from the social environment as a whole of the classroom and the school and stuff like that, our peers, you know. Um, I know um, not too long ago there was an incident um, where um, this girl um, called um, this black boy um, N-word, and she said it multiple times. I mean, it was disgusting, and it went all over Snapchat. Y'all know I got on her. Yeah, I sure did uh, post her on there, uh, on my story. Her. Yeah, and I'll do it again. And I'll do it again. But, uh, but um, it's stuff like that that perpetuates that awkwardness. You know You know what I'm saying? What do y'all think? No, when the picture was posted, it was just like her eye, and I was literally looking on Instagram. I'm like, who is this? I'm like, I think it definitely like perpetuates a stigma in our classrooms that white is the normality, and it makes people uncomfortable, and we shouldn't be uncomfortable talking about these things because it's what happened. The only reason it makes us uncomfortable is because we have been told that like as white people were, quote, the good guys for the longest time, mm-hmm. but seeing this we realized like no that's unethical and we need to accept the fact that we our ancestors have done unethical things and we need to take responsibility and realize the corruption that is in our society you know yeah racism really is taught like two sides of a baseball team and like it's not like you like you would tell the history of like sports because you're told you're talking like yeah our team the white team the american team did this war and it was good and everyone was happy and we liberated those people and so on and so forth, rinse and repeat, you know? And because of that, that's why people internalize criticisms to racism and imperialism and everything else is because you're taught like, oh, well, if you criticize the war in the Middle East, you're criticizing our team. You're criticizing me, you're criticizing my values because it's instilled upon you even as a child, even when, the values of the U.S. are contradicting your own, you know? Like, yeah. even when you are of a community that's been oppressed by, you know, by white America, mm-hmm. we're told as kids so much about how we went into this war and stuff like that. I talked about this earlier. 
but because of the way it's taught to us, we internalize all the injustices that were ever put against us. Right. And when we continue to face those injustices in the future, we kind of think, oh, well, that's me not living up to the standard that this country has given me and like all the stuff that it's done for me. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, sorry, go ahead. Oh, sorry. I was going to say, like, it kind of conflates two kind of criticisms. It, it comes across as a, a, a quarrel with the ideas to which, like, you know, the U.S., for example, like uh, intervene in the Middle East or something criticism against a, a racist institution, but it's a, they conflate that idea with a personal attack and a challenge onto their livelihood. And I think that like making the different, like discerning that, is a, is a step to to find finding people who will internalize this in a correct way and and will actually like um, learn from the flaws that are in our society instead of. You know, internalizing it, like you're saying. Yeah, and like, you know, I, I think what's what's kind of interesting too is uh, Rich Point. Honestly, it is a diverse school. Right. Honestly, yeah, it, it is. Fort Bend so ISD is so diverse. It's I went, diverse. I went to Palmer Elementary my kindergarten mm -hmm. year. I was one out of like three white kids in my class. Yeah. And wow. it's so, it's so, and, and you know what? Palmer is black. <laughs> but like, and you think that with, with diversity, you'd see like more like right equality, but yeah, instead you just see you see systematic racism in a microcosm. Yeah, and you know, to me, when you think about the climate of the the social aspects of our school. How many people do you think have done that same thing that that girl did on Snapchat? So many. Yeah. So she many. Felt, she felt We've seen so it. comfortable. She said it directly to him. She sent it to him with, like, she said she didn't even just say it. It, it was no a picture. Like, yeah. yeah. No right. It was so custom yeah. normal. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I also think like. And you know what? What's interesting too, because um, I you know I went on Instagram and found her girl <laughs> too. <laughs> I, said, but, um, I saw a picture of her. All of her friends looked. You know, they, they kind of all kind of fit. All look the same. Right. They all look the same. But, you know. All act the same. But, all say um, the same things. But, like, um, when, when, I, when, I, when I looked at the girl's Instagram, a whole bunch of her friends, they had this one picture, and it was all of them. And I was like, you know what? I don't know those girls like that, but I know they're very close. And I know me and James, we're friends. We share the same viewpoints on most things. You know, we've had these conversations, and I know all of us here share the same viewpoints on most things. Mm -hmm. I'm just saying, I don't know these people. <laughs> I don't. I truly don't. And I'm not going to make that assumption out th about them like that. But it just makes you wonder. It really does. It, it makes you wonder how many people are just like that girl. Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, this is the one that's gone like public. But right. I mean, yeah. Yeah. All, we always so have the story of like when we saw something that was crossing the line, but you didn't say anything because you didn't want to be that black kid. Mm -hmm. Like, yeah. sensitive and shit like that. Yeah, yeah. but at right. the end of the day, you have to think about it like, I would never sit here and have a friend who is racist or homophobic exactly. or stuff like that. So, unless you are those things, why would you want to consider someone like that your mm -hmm. close friend? Yeah, because right. yeah, I've seen so many people like defending them, saying, well, they didn't know it was wrong. They know it's wrong. Yeah. Yeah. They talk about I'm sorry, it. you are 17 years old. Pick up your phone, let's get on the internet. Because, you Especially know. Especially now. Right. Like, in these it, times, it, yeah. you should definitely no. see how things there are wrong. And talking about yeah. socially, how, how the school is set up. Um, now that literally Black Lives Matter and the movement and everything is on mainstream media, people feel like, oh, everybody wants to be an activist now and stuff like that. And I know socially that's going to become the new thing that's disliked by, at least in the climate of ours. And it's just like, come on, guys. Yeah, and that's where the come change, on. the change has to come culturally, like in yeah. aggregate yeah. sense. Like, and that's why I think education, you guys are talking about education. I thought it was such a fascinating conversation because that's how that cultural change 
is created yeah. through, mm. through curriculum. Like Maya, you talked about the writers of the textbook, the McGraw Hill or, or whoever they were, and 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 you said they you 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 hit, one of your friends put yourself in the perspective of a white male, and how like changing that, making it more revisionist, making us making us point out, making us learn from what atrocities have occurred and make them more vivid. I think the reason why you're seeing a lot more a lot more. Um, like instead of just instead of just black people like are, are, like marching on Black Lives Matter and the, the few variations you'll see you'll see men, every single race every like like white um, like Asian every single uh, any any background the the reason why that's spreading is because they they understand the vividity of this tragedy because mm. they saw it with George Floyd yeah. that is a turning yeah. point and I think that's a very positive thing and, and and the curriculum is an extension of that you need to you need to make it vivid you need to make the suffering of so many people make it to where they understand it and they don't want to hear it right yeah. and but it maybe, is maybe yeah. the fact that um that it is so taboo in our curriculum and our education system is why she felt that it was not okay but like that empowered her to go and say that maybe if we didn't you know suppress it so much you know people want to be naturally rebellious to you know they want to oppose the the norm but if we had open and honest conversations about race, maybe she wouldn't feel that way to, you know, that I should say something malicious, you know, just for attention or just to yeah. just mm -hmm. to get, you know, that kind of elicit that kind of reaction from people. And I just feel like slavery in general in our education system, you know, it's usually a chapter, but slavery doesn't end with one chapter or one uh, time period. Yeah. It extends throughout the entirety of American history. And the, the role of the African-American slave needs to be more pronounced because it is i mean america was built on the backs of slaves whether or not we want to acknowledge it or not you know the entire economic system of early america was built on that foundation of free labor 250 years of free labor so you know the more that we ignore that the more that we get these kind of outbursts or shows of ignorance and you know people not being willing to talk about it and the reason that you know we have to all take accountability you know and like me as an immigrant like I directly benefit off of you know what the civil rights movement and you know as a white person we have to understand that we take accountability for our actions and acknowledge that that happened so that we can move forward and we can progress I think exactly what you're saying about like how slavery is like a chapter you know that's being taught it's like we kind of teach history in a way where we get to a point where racism is unavoidable to speak about mm -hmm. and then you speak about it and then it's over Right. And then, after that, we kind of are taught that racism sort of fizzled out, or it doesn't exist now in our perfect status quo of the present. So that's why, that's what gives people, like, the idea that, you know, everything is fine now. Why are people protesting? Mm -hmm. You know, racism, that's, that's in the past. It's all those black and white pictures. And speaking know? of that, you know, I know earlier we, we talked about how Bridgepoint actually is a very diverse school. And people think, oh, we go to the same school. Like, how, how can you possibly say that we're unequal? And, you know, oh, God, don't even get me started on the people, like, on Snapchat and Twitter and stuff who are like, a black man gets killed and the world goes up in flames, but a white man dies. And it's like, bro, yeah. don't. Please like, don't. That's not like, even like, what it's about. It's the systematic oppression yeah. of um, African-American people and, you know, minority groups. Mm -hmm. I think that, like, when we talk, when we talk about racism people think of it as a direct hateful act towards somebody mm -hmm. but instead what we should be viewing it as is like you know the systems that we live in and our society that we live in like the systematic oppression of 
how things are set up to benefit one group of people and not another. It's not just like a directly hateful action towards someone else. So it, there's l- levels and layers to where, you know, those groups of people are disadvantaged and African-Americans are disadvantaged in this country. Mm-hmm. And those are the reasons why. And that's what makes the conversation harder. It's because yeah. it, like in the civil rights and slavery, you had a problem and you needed to solve yeah. it. And it was there. And, 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 and there are problems now that are evident seemingly to us, but to other people it's harder. It's harder to, to, to look at, you know, a, a, a someone a, someone who isn't a person of color and, and, and they live their life and they rarely think about racial issues. Mm-hmm. They think that if I don't deal with it, like, it, it's, it's hard to even yeah. think about it. And so that's, that's why I think, yeah. That's just the ignorance of it. I mean, yeah. at this point, I've been called the N-word multiple times, especially when I used yeah. to play sports and I was around people that weren't not my skin color. That's just how it is. That's and also, true. like, my but I confronted some people about it. Like, why would you say that? And they always go, it's just a word, even when it's directed towards me in a derogatory way. Mm-hmm. And I knew people that would say that. I knew people that would just say just casually. It's the ignorance of it. If you're, not, if, you're not, if you're not willing to change for the better of society, who would change? Like, who's going to change exactly. at all? You've got to understand the gravity of it. And I think yeah. another thing that our generation has done kind of a bad job of doing is uh there's this thing or it's not a thing it shouldn't be a thing but people claim that they have quote the m word n word pass which mm-hmm. is not oh, no. No. Yeah. No. And that is not a valid excuse to use that word at all nobody should use it in a derogatory way and no one should use it period unless you know like you're reclaiming your own history it, it shouldn't be a thing not to mention that people who are white a lot of our things that like we deem as our own such as rap music like certain fashion styles they're not ours they didn't originate as ours yeah we've just claimed them and funny that you brought that up because a the people giving out the quote-unquote n-word passes who are black realistically they just want to appease white people that's yeah, the reality exactly. no black person who is confident in themselves is like oh let me just give the white no and then as you talk about the fashion styles it's kind of funny because things like braids or certain clothing styles they're ghetto until white people do it until white celebrities do it and then it's yeah. high fashion just the other day i saw on twitter how there was like this article that was written about all these white like tiktok stars and youtubers yeah. about how they have long nails it. it was such a fashion trend but we've been doing it for so long yeah. and it's always been called ghetto or ratchet yeah. that's the thing of westernized culture you see who runs you see who's on the hollywood Pro people what's like, yeah. the higher power people like so you have politicians that have higher power I mean, you have people that are famous white celebrities you yeah. see what they you see how much influence they have on the world mm-hmm. so what they see is pretty everyone else is just a follower will see as pretty too you see what, what westernized westernized culture is when we see as beautiful when we see as mm-hmm. ugly right. and just yeah. like, you see is like basically it's, it's it's the same thing as the past the combination and the gentrification that originally happened to land is now happening to culture it's yeah. a cultural cultural icons that were associated with blackness and then associated with poverty or lack of intelligence. Once mm-hmm. they're appropriated by the right person, they become marketable. They become just a, yeah. a commodity. And when you can take a part of someone's culture and make it a commodity, then it becomes really cool for white people to do yeah. it. It's yeah. just like the N-word. The right. N-word yeah. became... The N-word, again, as it's like kind of evolved to become reclaimed by our community, it's become commodified by white people and now white people love to use it like, because that's the they thing. don't realize the history behind it. They think of it as a commodity, a, a word 
that can be not like bought and sold, but it can be used to enhance your social status. You can be yeah. cool, right. like people. And they know the history behind it. Surface level stuff, like for example, Billie Eilish. They, everyone credits her for how she dressed, how she dressed like out of the box and different. What did you? What do you think she got that from? Exactly. exactly. She got that from nineteen eighties rap. Culture. The first time I saw her, I was like, "Oh, she dresses like like an '80s rapper." Yeah. And mm-hmm. but everyone's like, "Oh my God, she's just so different." No, she's not. And I <laughs> like her. Nothing yeah. on her. No knocking her. What she's wearing isn't like cultural appropriation. As long as you're crediting where you got it from, you yeah. didn't create oh, that right. style. And I think we're that. underestimating how 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 like widespread how how um vivid. No, that's a wrong word. But like how to the extent to which Black culture has influenced. Everything. No, yeah. In terms of music, and I'm glad you brought that up about Billie Eilish. Like, I, I, that podcast, sixteen nineteen, where they talked about the influence of Black culture on music. They they brought up like, um, they brought up yacht rock, and it's like it's yacht rock is a playlist for like wealthy, well, the seventies and early eighties kind of like kind of kind of music, and they brought up um, they brought up like um, songs that I love. I love this song. Like they brought up songs like Steely Dan and um, the song Goodbye Stranger, which Evan and I, that's one of our favorite songs. And uh, heavily influenced by, by disco and by early blues and, and, and the vocal intonations of, of people like Robert Johnson and people like, um, people like Blind Willie Johnson, people that were uh, uh, pioneers of their own uh, of, and actually carried on from, from slave hymns. And, and around, and right. we, just, we, we don't, don't even think about it. Like I never knew, I never knew that. Yeah, and you know, kind of to kind of encompass everything that we've been talking about, I kind of want to pose this question to everybody. What can we do to actually combat these issues and, and to take a stance against all of this appropriation and this facade in our education systems? And I kind of want to, I want to start with Victoria and kind of get your thoughts. Well, like back to like the whole N-word thing, because you tell white people you can't say the specific word, it's going to make them want to say it even more. Like that's yeah. what I was going to put in earlier because it's like, don't think of purple elephants. You're gonna think of purple elephants because that's just what we do. Mm-hmm. And like, but the thing is, we just need to educate people more. Mm. And that's really what like the root of this problem is, is just education. Mm-hmm. And it's based on the people who write the curriculum and teachers who like put their viewpoints on their students. Mm-hmm. I mean, and that's really what it is. And its usage in history and how... No. I'm gonna love what Oh, and um, on that note, I gotta go volunteer. Um, <laughs> volunteer. Go, go do good yeah. things. Bye, Join Team Club. Do good things. Thank you for coming. Thank you, Victoria. Appreciate Bye, guys. It, <laughs> Rohan, what do you think um, in terms of solutions to everything we've been discussing? So, like Victoria said, um, changing the culture and knowledge is basically everything. Educating people on you know what happened and basically being able to stand in the shoes of other people and you know be able to experience and think okay how would this affect me if i was this person how would i feel how am i supposed mm. to feel you know and not tell other people how they're supposed to feel like you know you shouldn't be offended by this anymore because there's a reason why you're not offended or you know if someone tells me something and they say hey that offended me i'm never going to question even if i don't think it's offended offensive i'm never going to say oh you know you shouldn't be offended by it. i'm going to say i'm sorry that offended you i won't do that again so basically you know and the curriculum and education definitely need to be stepped up and I think this new generation of teachers are more educated more yeah. you know willing to you know mm-hmm. let kids know the, you know the reality of our world and you know not shelter or sugarcoat anything and I think we we are trying to come to that point so yeah Talia I just think we have to get very comfortable with being uncomfortable we have to yeah. acknowledge mm-hmm. the roots of everything and 
we, we just have to face the fact that this is history. This is what happened. We can't look at it blindsided. We, we, we have to, you know, just face the truth. Yeah. I, I like that. I, I love that. Face the truth. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Being uncomfortable is what we need. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Jack. Uh, same thing with Rohan. Like, and, and Talia. Um, it's education. It's what we learn. It changes our, our our dialogue and how we think about reality. It's not. It's not. Um, you know, uh, the complexities. It's not. It's reality. It's it's real. And and education and that foundation in, in, in our youth that changes the way we think about things mm-hmm. that's how to do it and real quick to jump off Talia that we shouldn't be uncomfortable to talk about race like you know race is uh, something that we should be able to have an open conversation about all the time like it shouldn't make us uncomfortable you know every race is beautiful and we should all like you know empower each other and be able to talk about it openly freely yeah. and I think um I think empathy kind of is what exactly. you're kind of touching on. Empathy, empathy, empathy. I think is is um, is one of the biggest things that we're missing right now. And I feel like our emotions drive our actions a lot. You know, I feel like I was kind of talking to James about this earlier. It's about three groups of people in terms of race issues right now. There's the black people who are fired up. We're like, yo gotta stop this stuff has to stop mm-hmm. you have the people who are you have the white people who are just kind of jumping on the boat you know what i'm saying they're getting ready for change they're learning they're in that kind of phase and then you have the races and you know and also included in the category with the black folks or the white there are uh, the allies you know who have been standing by us fighting uh, and in all races all yeah. the allies you know what i'm saying and i feel like that middle group is who we need to target right now yeah. because they pull over the other side. You know what I'm saying? They pull over the races because I feel like honestly, 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 you sitting down and having that conversation with someone about your past, your identity, you know what I'm saying? Making them understand who you are and why certain things affect you in a certain way and why they should why they should adjust to that accordingly, that is what leads to change, you know what I'm saying? Right. Um, and, and I, I even think about... Um, the girl we were talking about um, on Snapchat um, when she when she called that boy the N word. As much as I dislike what she did, and as much as I do not regret dragging that girl all on Snapchat, <laughs> um, I'm gonna have, let's have a conversation. You know what? Right. Well, I can have a conversation with you. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Let's work this out so Open that we can move forward. You know what I'm saying? And that's what creates I, empathy yeah. too. It's exactly. talking mm-hmm. and exchanging ideas and mm-hmm. being around each other. Right. Yeah. And we don't have to believe that there's a group of people that are, you know, you know, some people are just going to be so far gone that they can never come around and see the truth because, yeah. you know, those people when like let's say they have kids, right? Their kids are going to go to school and be like you know why? Why do we think of people this way? Or yeah. how come? You know they're mm-hmm. gonna challenge the status quo based on their ideas and opinions. So that's eventually you know how we become better and how maybe even their parents or you know groups of people that are single-minded get to changing and you Absolutely. know um, yeah. change throughout like generations. And we also need to see that racism is learned, and in order mm. to teach kids how not to um, like fall into that trap we have to teach change in order to see change yeah. and you know kind of kind of kind of adding on to that um that day um in my history class um before that because this had been i was thinking i had thought about speaking up about this for like a week it took me a little it took me a little bit of time but i had been talking to other classmates about how they how the way that what we were learning was making me feel you know what i'm saying and how i i, I didn't think it was cool and um 
that kind of brought a couple people to the light, I think. You know what I'm saying? And so just having those conversations really, really, really is so crucial right now. And yeah, yeah. James, what do you think? Um, I think it all stems from how open you you willing to be to other people. I think, I mean, honestly, you can have conversations with people, but if they're not trying, if they don't want to hear your viewpoints, then where is that gonna go? Is it gonna lead to? It also depends on how, how, how much their values, what they believe in, stick to them as a person. If you wear your values on the sleeve and someone defies them, of course you're gonna go back on. That's why a lot of racist, a lot of racist people, they have their their values, what they believe in. They're on their sleeve. You can see it proudly. Can like that's why Confederate flags are so predominantly more towards racist people. That's why that's why you like you see like a lot of characteristics towards those racist people and how people see the world. If you're not open to change, you're not open at least to have a conversation, see where maybe you can fix or change some things. Then I don't I don't know. I mean I, I wish racism could end, mm-hmm. but the fact the fact of the matter is, how can it end if it keeps getting taught? Like the thing is, people say they're not racist, but they look at me weirdly when I walk by the street if I have on a tank top yeah. and wear my dress. People say they're not racist, but they look at me differently when I walk into a suit store asking me, "Hey, what, why are you in here? What do you what do you want? Why are you in here?" And it might even be a subconscious, like, you know, stereotype that they have built in. They may not even yeah. be trying to be a racist, right. but, you know, the way that they were brought up or their experiences, like, they have that inherent bias that maybe even they don't know that they mm-hmm. have. And, you know, for me, um, I was watching one of my favorite YouTubers, um, and he was kind of talking about when you sit down to have that conversation with a person, um, they're first, they're going to be on the defense because yeah. their first instinct is going to be to say that they're not racist. And you know what? I, I like like kind of like we were talking about with that friend group earlier. I don't know if they're racist or not. I truly do not know. I, I don't know. What I do know is this. The actions that you display are racist. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about that. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Your actions are the issue. Now, where your actions come from, where they stem from, what they rooted for, do that's you. You know what I'm saying? You got to work that out. What I can tell you is right now, what you just did to me, you calling me the N-word, you looking me up and down when I'm walking down the street, you saying that that cop who killed that man should be set free, you know, that's racist stuff. You know what I'm saying? And you as a person have to be held accountable for that. And you have to look inward and figure out, why do I feel this way? But also, it's like just, for what reason? Why does it, why does it affect you? My granddad has three Mercedes. He was driving one of them, and they looked just like they looked just like our name na- our other neighbor's Mercedes. A white woman was walking. I mean, it comes to a point where like, how do why does why does people why do people that are different skin color than you that are different than you affect you in a certain way? Like, for example, when I first experienced racism, I was twelve years old. My granddad were at his neighborhood, and he owns three Mercedes, and one of them was one was similar to our neighbor, our white neighbors. And one day, our other neighbor, which is a, a middle-aged white woman, saw me and my granddad driving in our driveway with the Mercedes that he has. The white woman asked my granddad, goes, is that your car? And my granddad goes, yes, of course, but I wouldn't be. She looks at him again and goes, is that truly your car? And my granddad, annoyed, drives off. Come to find out, she goes to our neighbor that has a, that has a similar car to, as ours and asks them if your car was stolen. She must not have much to do. <laughs> I mean, like, yeah. girl, you got all that time. Please find a hobby. 
Bobby, go slow and hit us up, please. Well, in another form of like racism that people don't necessarily realize is gaslighting because there's the whole all lives matter thing. The reason that it's, it's racist inherently is because you are taking away from something that needs a conversation and putting yourself into the conversation where you don't need to be. Yeah. yeah. Like, it, it's it's not about you. It's about the group that is being oppressed. It's about who needs the, the help right now. All Lives Matter means that you want to take away from the movement that is happening. Black Lives Matter doesn't mean that black people are better than everyone else. It means that this group needs help at this time because they are being oppressed by systematic racism. Yeah. I think in addition, we should also talk about, like, um, I think that uh, delving deeper into the roots of how racism forms and, like, things like uh, colonialism and wealth inequality and how those contribute to racism, it also would help a lot, not just with the kind of all lives matter crowd, but a lot of people who do consider themselves allies and kind of fall into a sort of white saviorism trap where they kind of feel it upon themselves as a kind of heroic figure to save the black community, which a lot of allies can fall themselves into. And I think that when you examine the real, the systems that exist behind acts of racism, and that when you kind of free yourself from the notion of racism as being a problem of racist individuals doing racist things, because when you get to that point, you start to think, well, I'm not a racist individual, Ergo, what I do and my implicit biases are not racist. Mm -hmm. I think when you further examine how racism is systematic and how any individual can fall to those implicit biases and can become racist and can act racist, then that's when you see real change happening. When it starts becoming a matter of being individually good, of being the hero, of being the one to save it. Because individually as a person, you can not be racist but you can still fall into race into the traps of racism, yeah. of committing racist actions, because you think that you're above it. But no one is. No one is right. distinctly above. Yeah. Mm. And also, you benefit from the indivisible structures that are around you, yeah. and the, exactly. the societal structures around you. Like there are certain crazy. obstacles that you don't deal with that other people do. But that's the thing yeah. that Ron was saying. If you're maybe you do fall into that trap, so anyone can, like at any moment. Yeah. Mm-hmm. If you do fall in that trap, and like someone calls you out on it, just realize what you're doing. Just Take a step back mm-hmm. and just be open. Like the thing is, people have people's pride is just is just on their sleeves. Yeah. Yeah. So let's just, just be vulnerable and be open to right. learn. Just learn. Well, that's why yeah. people I think are so defensive is because they don't think of it as a system that they can be fault that they can yeah. become more open to. They think of it as racist people are racist. And if you're saying that something I did was racist, that means you're calling me a racist and you're attacking my character. And everything yeah. that comes with it. Right? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And that's why they get defensive. That's why they say all lives matter. That's why they yeah. say stuff like that is because they're feeling spurned by the idea of anti-racism because they realize that it combats prejudices that they themselves own. Mm-hmm. And they think, well, I'm not a racist. I can't, that can't possibly be about me. That means this protest is going too far. Mm-hmm. And that's yeah. where you get the kind of defensiveness. That's where you get the sort of reactionariness that you see nowadays is because we don't think of it as being the product of systems. We think about it as being the product of bad individuals who are stuck yeah. in the past, who are 
who look like racists who wear clan hoods yeah. and mob or like individual events. But it's even the yeah. best though, because they still wear yeah. the, We still have KKK. No, yeah, yeah. 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 Still have, but yeah. it's just the perception that this is in the past right. that this uh-huh. of this kind of caricature of a racist that you can distance yourself from right. and tell yourself that you're nothing like. So yeah. exactly. we need to get away from the idea that racists are KKK hillbillies. Like that's not <laughs> the only type of racist that. We mm-hmm. have, like, or if you have money and be racist. If yeah. you have money, you probably a lot of people have money are racist. Yeah. That, that also goes into how pr- pr- pretty much every system that we have in America is ra- inherently racist. Even class systems are racist. Exactly. Like the way that yeah. they started, very racist. And it's not just like the racism that we think of, because if you break down pretty much any system in America, from the school system to the prison system to the class system, exactly. they have a racist history and continue mm-hmm. to perpetrate racism and yeah. the biggest okay. oh sorry no go ahead and the biggest <laughs> excuse that i've seen that is prohibiting people from like fighting against this is them saying either it's not my battle to fight or it's not affecting me personally which mm-hmm. i think is honestly in my opinion it's inhumane it's kind of stupid because if you have friends who are fighting this battle you should be fighting it with them if you think it's wrong you should be fighting with them. You yeah. shouldn't be standing by and letting it happen. Exactly. That's the thing. Because I always feel like I'll, I'm a believer that you can never truly, you'll never be able to truly realize what people are going through if you don't, if you don't have the, if you don't have the experience of it. I agree. Yeah. Uh-huh. It's like for anything in my opinion, not just race, just for anything. Like you never, you'll never understand what they truly go through. Yeah. Like exactly. it's hard, and that's hard to understand. But also like, but you still have decent. Human, like we all, like, we're, at the end of the day, we're all just humans, mm-hmm. and we should all just learn how to just. It's about getting out of that kind of hero's journey mindset. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, It's about getting out of that kind of like, well, it doesn't apply to me in my story. Ergo, it doesn't. Right. It's not yeah. real. Well, I think what you're saying about Evan, like, I think the criticism to people who are who are active in trying to solve these uh, institutional problems is that um, is that they think that society and his history is so so malleable. Is that things have changed? MLK made his I made a dream speech and it's solved. Like it's done. Like what else is there to do? The line it, it's harder to discern. And so I think um, you know individually identifying stuff like uh, benefits that you have and identifying like the wealth inequality systems that you brought up and 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 actively changing that system that we're in is how to is how to view it. Right. And we talk about systematic yeah. oppression one more thing real quick. Um, we talk about systematic oppression and I think sometimes we don't understand what that is and it's the direct oppression of keeping African Americans, minorities, minorities or any minority group down from being able to advance in society and better oh. themselves. And the only way that we'll be able to fix that is the economic liberation of African Americans and you know people in these society, I mean communities that can't uplift themselves and fight for change because they have no power. Like, exactly. Economic back, liberation yeah. is the only like way. Like going back to just culture, like hip hop and culture and hip hop, and just culture in general. Like people ask, why do they, why do they glorify them selling crack cocaine? Why do people like that kind of yeah, glorify? Exactly. Like t- rap about, rap about, you know, selling crack in the streets. Why is that? Why does that impact them so much? Because that's all they could do at that moment in time. And it's very hypocritical because you know the movie Boys in the Hood kind of touches on this. It's like. You know, all you see in the hood is liquor store, gun store, you know, and crack. But where did the crack and liquor stores come from? Mm-hmm. You know, they didn't put them there. Where did the where did the AK forty sevens come from? I mean, there are no black people going to Russia and coming back and bringing back AK forty sevens. It's uh-huh. to keep these people down. But it's all going on behind the scenes. And the first person we blame 
on the surface is the people who are actually the victims of yeah, these exactly. kinds of violence. Yeah. And, and I kind of I kind of agree. I agree with you, Ronan, because that the movie that's art. You exactly. know what I'm saying? And art has such a big influence on that's shining true. a light on these issues. And um, our next segment is going to be about art innocence. So go ahead and stay tuned uh, if you want to hear more from us. So that is going to be it for this segment. Thank you so much for listening, and we will see you next time. Bye. 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 <laughs>